Well, let me say again, good morning, and good to be with you all today. It's been, we, we've had to make some adjustments over the past couple weeks. The plan was that as Greg was taking the last week of the year off, that I would fill in and preach, and then he had planned to be gone last Sunday, and I would have preached last Sunday, and there's that saying that when man plans, God laughs, and that grandbaby just had to wait a few days, and uh, Pastor and Carol, they waited until this past week to fly out, so they were here last week, gone this week, so I get to be with you again today instead of last week, so if I make any references to what I said last week, just know that I meant two weeks ago, because I had written some notes down as I would, because today's message is kind of a it's, it's a, it's a two-parter from where we were at um, two weeks ago. So the intention was I would finish up. So if you weren't here two weeks ago, um, you, you won't be lost, but um, shame on you. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but we are glad to be here together, to be in God's Word this morning. And we do want to continue to keep uh, Pastor Greg and Carol in, in our prayers as they're enjoying that time away um, pastor will be flying back this week to be back with us. Carol will be staying probably until her daughter says you can leave. She'll probably stay as long as she needs to. So, um, but we just want to keep them in, pray- in, our, in our prayers as they travel. And uh, just it's, it's always a blessing, as I said. It's a blessing and a privilege to be before you this morning. And so um, as we prepare to dive into our text this morning, uh, let's, let's first ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. So let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, may it be the desire of our heart to see you glorified through our lives, Lord, in this new year. Lord, we thank you for the blessings of another year and for another opportunity to live for you and more opportunities to point other people to you. We ask for your hand of blessing this morning and favor as we read and we study your word together this morning. Lord, as I recognize that I'm not worthy to be here, to stand in this pulpit, but God, your word is worthy. And I pray that that is what is proclaimed and heard today. Guide us now as we look to the scriptures for instruction, for encouragement, for correction where it may be needed. It's in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here, as I said a couple weeks ago, you heard me as we're going to be in the book of Galatians again. In Galatians chapter 3, we read verses 1 through 14 a couple weeks ago. Today, we're going to be finishing up Galatians 3. We're going to read verses 15 through 29 here in just a moment. And if you remember or recall, or if you can see, even as you look uh, in this passage, you see a lot of discussion about law. We talked about the law last week, or see, I did it uh, two weeks ago. Uh, We talked about the law and its relationship to grace and to faith. We're going to continue that this morning. Um, And so when we talk about the law, though, I know it can be kind of a it's, it's a heavy subject, and sometimes it's not the most exciting subject. Now, I'm a fan of John Grisham movies, um, movies that have to do with, with, you know, with the law, the concept of the law, and I, uh, I also like television shows that deal with 
you know, the concept of law, like law and order or other, you know, courtroom drama, things like that. I like those shows. And I think one of the reasons that I do enjoy them uh, is that the mediums of television and film, they're able to interject some, uh, some entertainment into what we would probably consider a rather boring setting. Uh, I don't think many of us would find our stint serving jury duty as entertainment. There aren't too many people that are willing to shell out 10 to $12 a person to watch the results of a civil court case down at the courthouse. Normally, listening to someone make a legal case can be pretty boring. Now, of course, we might find ourselves more interested if the impending verdict affects us in some manner. But I mention that because, as I said, we encounter a situation like that in this passage that we're going to be looking at today. It's not one of those passages that lends itself to emotionally charged sermons that leave people with the feeling of being at a spiritual pep rally. Now, I do appreciate uh, our brother Rob as he read those passages, that, those verses from Romans, which did talk about the law, but it talked about more of the grace aspect of it. And he was very, I, I love your enthusiasm in reading through the scripture this morning. And so, because th- that led me, made me fired up this morning hearing that. But as we get to the, this passage here in Galatians, it might seem a little bit bogged down. Um, and so it can, what it's going to do is it's going to challenge us this morning. And we'll be challenged to strengthen our biblical roots with an ever-deepening understanding of the ways of God, but maybe in a way that we, we don't typically think about. In fact, in a, sermon that, uh, in a sermon that he preached on this passage, John Piper, he challenged his congregation to have patience as the text may seem to have nothing that is immediately practical. Now, of course, there are practical applications to be found, uh, and I'm hoping to draw those out, but to see and experience them is a process of thought as the implications for what we should be and do. They don't lie on the surface. We do have to dig a little bit deeper. And so my hope through this message this morning is just like Pastor, uh, Pastor John Piper said when he, when he talked about this, and he said, when texts like these take root in our understanding, we become like sturdy trees planted by streams of water whose leaves do not wither, who do not get blown over by false teaching, and who keep on bearing fruit when the shallow plants have all dried up. So with that in mind, let's look to our text this morning. If you're able, I would invite you to stand in honor of reading God's word. We're going we're gonna to read the full passage this morning. So Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15 through the end of the chapter. And the holy and inerrant word of God says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, longer, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his eternal and errant and holy word, and may the Holy Spirit write its truth on our hearts. You may be seated. Think about how often we see rules posted for us to see. Parents, maybe you have rules posted on your fridge or some other high traffic area of the home for the, that are ex- expectations for the home. Teachers, you probably have some rules posted in your classroom. In fact, if we were to visit the classrooms here at OCS, I know we would find various rules posted on the walls. You're going to see rules posted on the side of the road as you leave here after this morning service. We are all here this morning under a variety of laws. In fact, as one commentator said, each one of us is at any given moment under many more laws than the ancient Israelite ever was. But as any parent or teacher or officer of the law can tell you, rules and laws do not create compliance. They guide behavior, but they cannot create it. And the same is true with God's law. This is, what we're gonna, this is what we were looking at a couple weeks ago, and it's, it was in the first part of Galatians chapter 3. And so my hope for us today is that we're going to have a better understanding of the purpose of the law. In fact, the title of our message comes right from verse 19, which says, why then the law? What was the purpose of God giving the law? And we're going to look at that and why God gave the law to his people in the first place. The last time we were together, we saw that Paul had been arguing against the teaching of the Judaizers, proving that justification comes by faith and not by works. That is what the Judaizers had come into these churches here in Galatia and were trying to convince the people of. Paul had come and preaching the gospel of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. He was teaching them that that was the true gospel, and then the Judaizers were coming behind and saying, that's all well and good, but let's, we got to make sure that we add to it and keep to the Jewish law. So you can believe that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, but we need to add, you also need to be circumcised and adhere to the Jewish law. So what they were doing was making it Jesus plus. They were adding this additional requirement to the law. And so what we saw in, at the beginning part of Galatians 3 was Paul was saying, no, that's not the case. He first appealed to their faith experience, how they came by to, to, to faith in Christ in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And then he reminded the Galatians of how they had received the Holy Spirit. And he argued from Scripture. We see that in Galatians 3, 6 through 14 there, where he quoted the biblical record of Abraham, who gave them an example of faith. And then we saw our need for faith as the law brought a curse to all who were unable to follow it to perfection which includes all of us. And so now, in the remaining section here of Galatians 3, Paul is using an illustration from the world of jurisprudence. 
he is going to use an example of man-made and physical law to uh, illustrate how what God's law was given, or the purpose for which it was given. And Paul is a master of anticipating arguments. He would all, he, if you read many of his letters, he would always anticipate what someone might object to in his writing. He would write a biblical truth. Okay? It's biblical because it was written by Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It became biblical once he wrote it, but he was he would give them this biblical truth and then say, now you might say, and he would give them their own argument that they, he was anticipating for them to say and then continue with what he was saying. So Paul, he, he, he knew that because he knew the people he was writing to. He knew what his opponents believed. And so Paul was always ready to give his defense of what he believed. And many times he would even be his own antagonist, anticipating what arguments might be thrown his way. In the previous section, he presented that Abraham was justified by faith. And he said all who likewise followed Abraham would be then justified by faith. And so immediately he assumes that someone's going to have an objection, something to this effect. So they might say, okay, Paul, you say that Abraham was justified by faith, and the people who came after Abraham were justified by faith alone. Well, that's fine. But then the law came 645 years after Abraham, and that annulled the standard of salvation in Abraham's day, and it supplanted it with a new one. Okay? They might have said, we buy the fact that Abraham was justified by faith, but that's only because the law had not yet been given. Once the law came, that changed everything. So the objections would have been that the law would annul the earlier faith agreement, meaning that from the time of the law on, God justified by faith plus works or faith plus obedience to the law. So Paul was anticipating that the Judaizers would have asked, why else would God have given the law? So we're going to begin by looking at the institution of the covenants that God made with his people. First of all, we're going to be looking at the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, and we see that that is a covenant rooted in love. Paul talks about first, now when he starts talking about a covenant, he gives us an illustration of a man-made covenant. Okay, he just says, if you were to make a covenant with another man, if a, one man was going to make a covenant with another man, this is what it would look like. And he says that when a, when, uh, a, when a covenant is made, nothing can be added to it once it has been ratified. When Paul talks about a covenant here, he's referring to a covenant for an inheritance, a last will and testament of sorts. And, and this would be a legal arrangement in which one party bestows his or her estate on someone else. Okay, it's a grant. It's not a bargain. Okay, it's when, when, you, when someone's last will and testament is read, you don't get to sit around and go, well, that's maybe not what really needs to be said. Let's work. He, he divided up his belongings this way. We're going to divide them up this way. Okay, no, once, it was, once a, a will, last will and testament has been notarized and put forth by a, a lawyer or a judge, that it, it cannot be changed. And so that's what Paul's trying to show them. This is a man-made covenant. It can't be changed. So we're going to look further at the implication of this covenant and look and see what, how it applies to the covenant God made with his people. And the first thing that we see is the permanence of the covenant. The kind of covenant that Paul is talking about here is irrevocable. 
Once it is signed, sealed, and delivered, it cannot be changed. There's no way to set it aside. There's no way to add to it. It cannot be abrogated or annulled. It cannot be amended or adjusted. It is legally binding exactly as it stands. And Paul's talking about a man-made covenant. If this is all true at the human level, it is all the more true when it comes to the covenant God established through Abraham. So what Paul's doing is using this argument. He's using the the, uh, argumentative example of, of arguing from the lesser to the greater, saying if this is true, then this certainly must be true. If a man-made covenant cannot be broken, then certainly a divine covenant cannot be broken. What holds true in human court has even greater force in the courtroom of Almighty God. And in those days, covenants were not based on a handshake or a signature on a piece of paper. They were sealed in blood by a covenant ceremony. If you were to go to the book of Genesis, and you would go to Genesis 15 and look at verses 9 through 10 and verses 17 through 18, you would find the covenant, and here's what, how God made this covenant with Abraham. He says, so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. When the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And the sacrifice of these animals and the fact that God passed between them, he validated his covenant in a legally binding way. In the Old Testament, when people would make a covenant like this and a covenant in blood, they would cut these animals in half and the two parties would then pass between them. Now, when God made this covenant with Abram, he put Abram's, he put him aside and God is the only one who passed between. Now, he didn't figure it literally, he figuratively in the form of this flaming torch pass between these two split halves of all these animals to signify that it was God making the covenant. There was not even a human party involved. The covenant was made to Abraham, but it was made by God. Okay, this is doubly signifying that it could not be broken because there was not God's party, man's party, and that man could somehow break his part of the covenant. No, God made the covenant with himself, and that covenant could not be broken. So the point that Paul is trying to make with the analogy of these covenants is that what God covenanted to do with Abraham that night would remain in force forever. The New International Commentary on Galatians, it says, Paul regards the promise of Abraham as a divinely ratified settlement or covenant and argues from its considerable priority to the law that its provisions cannot be made null and void by the later introduction of the law. You cannot adjust the terms of a human testament, much less a divine one. So once God duly established his covenant, it could never be annulled or amended. It was permanent. And permanence is a rare thing in this day and age. Not too many people can claim to live in the same house they lived in when they first got married. Think about how often people change jobs. How often people change relationships at the drop of a hat. You can look to the world of sports. You don't see loyalty to a team anymore like you you once did. I mean, a $700 million payday could make almost anyone play for the Dodgers. 
So to talk about permanency now can seem like a foreign language. But it is such an amazing thing to think that the covenant that God made with Abraham over 2,000 years ago is still in effect today. And if Paul was telling the Judaizers and the Galatians that there was nothing that they could do to change it, the same goes for us as well. We cannot add to God's covenant of faith. And so we should take comfort in that fact to this, that to this day there is still nothing that we need to do or that we can do to earn favor with God. But what does a covenant made with Abraham have to do with the Galatians or with us? Well, Paul answers that, que- that question by identifying the party to the covenant in verse 16 where he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. All preaching should be done in reference to Christ. All study of Scripture should be done with Christ in mind. Why? Because all of Scripture points to Christ. The Bible is Christocentric. Everything in it is about Christ or points to Christ. And this is the case that Paul is making here. He points out that when God told Abraham that he would use his seed to bless the earth, he was referring to seed in the singular sense. And so I believe it's important to look at the textual argument to understand the point that Paul's making here. One of the arguments that is used frequently regarding this verse is that, well, he says seed, and seed can be used collectively. Just as we say the word family can be used collectively to refer to more than one. It can be your immediate family. It can be generations of family. Family can be a smaller or larger unit. And so people would say, well, when he said seed here, and when it said seed in the Old Testament, it could have been referred to a much larger group of people. Well, we shouldn't think that Paul was so naive to overlook that there is a way you, that, that this word or this word could be interpreted. Because on numerous occasions, Paul did use the word seed to refer to many people. But he also knew that it could be used to refer to a singular person, such as in Genesis 21, 12. In that passage, the word is used to refer to Abraham's seed, specifically talking about Isaac. Paul uses the word here in its singular sense because he knew that there was a divine purpose in that covenant that God made with Abraham and to his seed that would culminate in the Messiah. So Paul is saying that when you understand the word offspring or seed in its Old Testament context, and you see that it represents a limited offspring, not all of Abraham's offspring, And then you learn from the other scriptures that there is a Messiah coming who will be the offspring of Abraham and fulfill the promises. And it is fitting to say that God's promise to the limited offspring of Abraham must refer in a unique way to Christ. Now, Paul and the other inspired writers of the New Testament, they paid careful attention to the grammar and the context of the Old Testament passage that they quoted. For this reason, it's important for us to take note of grammar and context when we read Scripture. Pastor John MacArthur, he had a great take on Paul's attention to context and grammar when he said the best reason that Paul has a right to make this word seed refer to one 
is because the same Holy Spirit that wrote Genesis also wrote Galatians. The Holy Spirit knows what he meant. Okay, so when he, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write the books of the law, the five, first five books of the Old Testament, so when those books were written, the Holy Spirit inspired him. When Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, he was inspired by the same Holy Spirit. And so it's safe to assume that the Holy Spirit knew what he meant. God knew what he meant when he wanted Paul to write these words down. Continuing with what what, uh, Pastor MacArthur says, he says, it's the case of the Holy Spirit interpreting the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit said in Genesis the words, in thy seed shall all be blessed, the Holy Spirit had referenced Christ. And Paul here gives us the exposition of that passage to show us that's what the Holy Spirit meant. God, through the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is using Paul to point back to what he said in the Old Testament. And basically, Paul is acting as a commentator, a commentary of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit says, see, this is what I said. This is what I meant. When I referred to the seed there of Abraham, I was talking about Christ. If you don't believe me, I'm saying it again here. So how awesome is it that we have God telling us what he meant by a text in the Old Testament by having a New Testament writer explain it to us? That's much better than having some man stand up here in a pulpit and tell you, well, this is what God's Word says. If you can imagine God standing up here and saying, let me tell you what I said. And it's like, oh, okay, did you really mean that? You know, you can sit there and question me all day long and you, you make sure that it lines up with Scripture, but for us to sit back and say, God, are you sure you meant that? Hey, Paul, Paul knew what the Holy Spirit meant because he was under the same inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when he is referring to the seed of Abraham in Genesis, he's talking about Christ. How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit tells us right here in Galatians, he was talking about Christ. And so what God is telling us is that the promise that God made to Abraham, the promise of the offspring, is referring to the promise of the coming Messiah. He is the party to the covenant. That covenant was all about Christ. And so this is what Paul meant earlier in Galatians when he said that the Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What God promised to Abraham was the good news about Jesus Christ. For it is in him that all the nations of the earth are blessed. The heir of the promise is Christ. The one and only heir of everything, of every promise of God, is Christ. So what about us? What about the rest of the world? Well, the only way for us to take part in the blessing of God's promise is to be in Christ. That is what we heard from Romans chapter 8 earlier this morning. That if we are children of God then we are heirs with Christ. The Puritan William Perkins said, the promises made to Abraham are first made to Christ and then in Christ to all who believe in him. And here we are reminded again of the doctrine of the union with Christ, which is central to Paul's letter to the Galatians. And it's central to Paul's theology in general. Well, how do we have union with Christ? By faith. We trust that his grace is sufficient to cover our sins and that it is by his righteousness, which is imputed to us, that we find salvation. It's only through faith that we can receive these blessings. 
To quote William Perkins again, he says, The right way to obtain any blessing of God is first to receive the promise, and in the promise, Christ, and Christ being ours, in him and from him, we shall receive all things necessary. So what Paul is saying is that in essence, there is only one party to the covenant, and that is Jesus Christ. Yes, we can, have, we can receive the same inheritance, but only if we are joined with Christ. Without Christ, we get nothing. But this is what the Galatians were in danger of forgetting. By trusting in the works of the law, they were dividing the church. They were putting the Jews on one side, the Gentiles on the other. The Judaizers thought that they were party to the covenant because they were literal seeds of Abraham. And thus, they were party to the covenant that God made with Abraham. But Paul is showing that the promise to the offspring of God's eternal purpose is for one family, <coughs> excuse me, those who are in Christ. <coughs> excuse me. And we're going to see the climax of this argument when we get to the end of this chapter when he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. So let us look then now at the promise of the covenant. Promise is a key word in Galatians, particularly in this chapter. It appears eight times in the last 15 verses. And the important thing about this promise is that Paul is trying to point out that it came before the law. Verse 17 this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. God's promise takes preeminence over the law. Now, the promise and the law are two separate but complementary arrangements. They operate on, on two entirely different principles, faith and works. The promise is about what God will do, and the law is about what we must do, and the promise of God takes priority. The law is secondary within the history of redemption. The Judaizers were trying to say that when the law came around, it supplanted the promise, and or, or, there, or at best, they were saying it was just an addendum to the promise. And so that's why Paul's introducing this legal illustration because he's saying God's promise, it takes, the, it takes preeminence. It is, in the, it is in the foreground. It takes priority over the law. God's promise was irrevocable and could have nothing added to it. Nothing could change it. Nothing could take its place. If God had intended for the law to complete what faith had started, well, then that would have been no good for Abraham because he was long gone by the time the law was given to Moses. Yet we've already seen that Abraham was counted as righteous. It couldn't have been because of the law, because the law had not yet been given. It was because of faith. And this is how Paul sums up this argument. He says that if the inheritance is based on the law, then it cannot be based on a promise. The two cannot go hand in hand. It has to be one way or the other. And Paul reminds us that God granted Abraham the inheritance by means of a promise. God is not putting the inheritance now on a new basis. He's not saying, once I taught you to trust me, now I teach you to work for me. Once I taught you to rely on grace, now I teach you to earn merit. 
Once I taught you to magnify me through faith and trust, now I teach you to magnify yourselves through legalism. No, God does not contradict his covenant in this way. He does not condemn or, or, he does, or God does not commend contrary ways of salvation. If God had set the inheritance on a new basis and taught people to earn their salvation, he would have opposed his promise and he would have nullified grace. He would have promoted pride and canceled the stumbling block of the cross. Now, the law is holy, it is just, and it is good, but it does not teach us to engage in this Galatian heresy of legalism. And the same basis for salvation applies to us, meaning that if we are in Christ, then we share in the inheritance of the promise given to Abraham. God deals with us according to his promise, not according to our works. Salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. He has promised eternal life to everyone who comes to Christ in faith. And God will not, he cannot go back on his promise. Again, I reiterate how amazing it is that this covenant is permanent. Praise God for his free gift of grace. It's a gift, it's a promise, it's an inheritance that we don't have to earn. We simply believe that God will make good on his promise to save us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this, this now leads us to our next section, which begins with Paul anticipating that question. Why then the law? If God made the promise to Abraham and we are saved by that promise, then why did God need to give the law? Why did he need to set forth these rules of things that we must obey as his people? So we're going to be looking at another covenant. We're going to be looking at the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. It was there that God gave the law. It was there that he laid out his expectations for how his people should conduct themselves. Now, we, we mustn't confuse the covenant of the law that he makes with Moses with the covenant of works that God made with Adam. God made a covenant of works with Adam in the garden, and that covenant re did require complete and perfect obedience. And when Adam broke that, it is why Adam was then separated from God's presence there in the garden, and Adam and Eve were forced out of the garden. So that covenant, the covenant of works, is different. Don't confuse these two. So let's look at the Mosaic covenant, which had, while it had different conditions to the Abrahamic covenant, one thing I want us to see is that the Mosaic covenant, just as the Abrahamic covenant, was rooted in love. This is going to hurt me a lot more than it hurts you. How many of us have heard that statement before? What was the context of that statement? How many children heard that from a parent? Anybody? Anybody ever heard that? And what was the context? It was usually under discipline, right? It usually meant we were being punished for something. And how many of us ever thought to ourselves when we heard that phrase from our parents, what a bunch of baloney? If that were true, then maybe I'm the one that needs to whip you because you sound like you need the punishment. I need to, I need to feel bad, so let me hit you. Okay, I'm, I'm not, 
let's not go over the, into that right now. But, but we usually don't think of punishment being good. And it usually takes us a while, for some longer than others, that parents punish their children, not because they don't love them, but because they do love them. Parents don't give their children rules and boundaries in hopes that they will break those rules, and then they get to dish out punishment. The rules are given in hopes that the children will follow them, and that by following the rules, they will be free from danger, and that they will grow into well-behaved adults. Rules are given out of love, which in turn means punishment for breaking rules is done in love. The same is true of God and his rules or his law. Too many people think that God is just sitting in heaven waiting for people to mess up so he can smite them. But that is not why God gave us the law. He gave it to us out of love. Now, we're not going to see every single purpose of the law in the remainder of this passage, but we hopefully will get a better understanding of the progression of law to faith. Salvation is given based on the promise that God gave Abraham, and that promise is received by faith, and it is the law that drives us to faith. Now, last time I was able to um, be with you and preach, I mentioned that many people have misunderstood the relationship between law and grace, thinking that the law has no impact on them because they've been saved by grace. But we need to understand law and grace are not opponents. In fact, they're more like teammates. Fans of the Chicago Cubs got a great illustration of this during the summers of 88 and 89. The Cubs traded for Vance Law. And then later that summer, they called up Mark Grace. And they appeared in the batting lineup in the proper order with Grace batting fifth, followed by Law. And then in the field, opposing batters would hit the ball to third, where Law would knock it down and fire it to Grace at first. Law to Grace to retire the side. Now, while this story does add a humorous element to what Paul is trying to say, it's a great, there's a great nugget of truth to be learned from it, is that grace and law, as I said, grace and law are teammates, and they are working together for the salvation of God's people. The law leads to grace, which can only be found in Christ. And so this is the answer that Paul is attempting to give when he poses the question there in verse 19, why then the law? Again, Paul's anticipating argument. And based on his previous statements about the law, it's a pretty obvious argument. Because Paul had just finished arguing that God's blessings come by grace through faith, not by the law. He's appealed to experience, to scripture, to daily life, to prove that justification and the Holy Spirit come to us through a promise. So if everything God has to offer comes through the promise, then who needs a law? Well, the law, being God's law, does have a purpose. And Paul points out part of that purpose in his next statement. He says it was added because of transgressions. Now, of course, that statement raises as many questions as it does answers. Because what does Paul mean when he says the law was added because of transgressions? Now, some have suggested that this means that the law was added to deal with bad behavior, that it was 
that by giving the law, it was creating a deterrent by giving consequences. That the law would then say, well, if you do this, this is what will happen to you. And so it was hopefully creating a deterrent from improper bad behavior that God did not, uh, or that, that God despised. Well, this is actually referred to as the second use of the law. Because while this is one of the aspects of the law, and it is in part meant to help people avoid sin, it's more likely that Paul meant the opposite of a deterrent. Because some, so sometimes the law restrains sin, but this is not why God gave Moses the law with all its regulations and requirements. He did not give it to decrease transgression, but he actually gave it to increase transgression. Now, at first, that sounds a little bit backwards. Like the law was made to encourage us to sin. But the law does not make us sin. The law does not make us sinners. The giving of the law just simply reveals the fact that we are sinners. Because the law shows that we were behaving already in contrary to what God wanted. Now it's just provided for us what God expected of us. The law has a way of making people want to break it. Have you ever been put in a situation where there was only one or two rules that had to be followed? Imagine you're placed in an empty room with a giant red button and a sign that says, do not push. How many of you are going to want to push that button simply because there's a sign that says, do not push? Now, I'm not saying that everyone's going to break that rule, but if put into that, situa that situation, I would dare say that almost every one of us would be tempted to or wonder what would happen if we did break that rule. How badly do we want to do something the minute we are told that is the one thing we cannot do? Just to, here's an example from my own personal experience. When I was in college, I looked forward to moments where I was able to dress up and put on a suit and tie. I enjoyed it. I, li I liked when we had you know, like formal get-togethers and things. And I, I liked doing that. I would always, I, you know, I liked wearing a tie to church and I would do all those things. But then I got to seminary and the seminary that I attended had a rule that ties must be worn. All of a sudden, I hated wearing ties. <laughs> and I acted out in rebellion and refused to wear one. I was a regular James Dean bad boy. Tell me I can't wear a tie. Watch this. Or I have to wear a tie. So, I, I, so this is what the law does. The law reveals how sinful we really are. This is what Paul's trying to tell the Romans when he said in Romans 7, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Again, he says it in Romans 5.20, the law came so that the transgression would increase. Hopefully you never have to experience this, but if you were to ever stand before a judge charged with some sort of wrongdoing, and you, could, and you can stand there and say, I didn't know that I couldn't do that. You might say, I didn't know that the speed limit on that road was 25 miles an hour. And they can say, well, you certainly didn't think that it was 75, did you? But what, what's, a, what's a judge going to say? Or if a police officer stopped you and you said, I didn't know that the speed limit was this, what's a, what are they going to say? 
Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Just because you didn't know what it was doesn't mean that the law was not there. So God always had a standard. God has always had a standard for what is expected of his people. It's just until the law was put into effect, people, maybe they just weren't, they were ignorant of what God expected. And so now they were shown, this is what God expects of his people. They might have already been breaking God's law, they just didn't know that it was the law. So now they are convinced, and, and so we can, we can see how this is a good thing, to know what God expects of us. You ever been put in a situation and never been, where, you, where there are rules, but you're not told what they are? You might start a new job, and they're not told what's expected of you, and that can be a very frustrating thing to try to do what you think is supposed to be done, but you don't know what the expectations are. Well, now God has given the expectations. This is what is required. If you've read Romans, you know that the first half of that letter, Paul is trying to convince his readers of how bad mankind truly is. And then here in Galatians, Paul is trying to convince his reader that the law cannot save. It can only condemn the law. Uh, when you put the law up against our behavior, we see we cannot obey this law perfectly. And so if there is a consequence to the law, we see it in that it is, we, Paul said this in Romans, the wages of sin is death. There is a consequence for our behavior that goes against God's plan. So Paul is trying to convince his readers that the law cannot save, it can only condemn. It's a com this is a common technique used in sharing the gospel. We use the law to show someone their need of Jesus. If someone says they're good enough to get to heaven, we can simply take them to the Ten Commandments and ask them, have you kept all of these, just these ten, have you kept them all perfectly? And if they say they haven't, we then show them that even one transgression one sin separates us from God. So the law reveals our sin and it shows us our need for salvation. The law doesn't merely show us that we're sinners, but it shows us that our sin is in rebellion against a holy God. And because all men are created with a moral compass, man would have some knowledge that he was a sinner. But when the law was established, he was made completely aware that his sin was in direct violation of Almighty God. Martin Luther wrote, The true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. Now, while this may seem like miserable news to hear, it's actually very good news. Now, it may seem a little crazy to say, but, but to be told how bad a person is can be good news because it is that knowledge that reveals our need of a Savior. John Calvin said, The law was given in order to make transgressions obvious and in this way to compel men to acknowledge their guilt. And it is only when we see our guilt that we see how much we need Jesus. So one of the purposes of the law is to get us to faith in Christ. Now Calvin described three purposes or uses of the law. He called the first use of the law its ability to reveal sin, which in turn points us to Christ. 
And then I mentioned earlier, the, he was the one that referred to the second use of the law, which was a deterrent for sin, to help us not break God's law. And the third use of the law is to show us how to live. Just what does God expect? Not, not necessarily the sin, but what does God expect of us? How should we live? Paul, Paul talks about that later in the book of Galatians. He, he, he finishes up in Galatians 5 talking about how God's people should live. Well, as we continue on in this passage, Paul shows us that the first use of the law is temporary. It has its limits. As we have seen, the law was given to reveal sin and point us to Christ. Now, I said that the purpose of the law, that purpose of the law is temporary, not the law. The law is permanent, but that purpose of the law was temporary. Once Christ is revealed to us, we no longer need the law to show us our sin. The law served this purpose from the moment it was given to Moses until it was fulfilled in Jesus. When the seed came, as Paul mentioned, the work of the law was finished. Now, like I said, the, the, the law is eternal in the sense that it is God's perfect, permanent, moral standard for his people. And the, that standard was made known to Adam, and it's going to stand for all eternity. The specific administration of the law given to Moses with all of its ceremonies the curses, and the sacrifices, that part had its limits. As far as the history of salvation is concerned, its usefulness as a preparation for the gospel was only temporary. It was enforced only, as Paul says, until the seed would come whom the promise had been made. When the Son came, the work of the law was finished. The law here was limited in its duration. And as one commentator said, the time for it to reveal sin and to increase transgression lasted only from Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary. Now, Paul continues to show the law's limitations by comparing it to the promise given to Abraham. The law and the promise were given in two different ways. The promise was made directly to Abraham while the law was given through a mediator, through angels. Now, these angels were not mentioned specifically if you read Exodus and you read the giving of the law that was uh, where, that when Moses received it, but he does mention them in Deuteronomy chapter 33, where it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand there was a flashing lightning for them. So the law was given through a mediator. It wasn't given directly from God to Moses. It was given through a, a mediator, uh, these, these angels. God, uh, David also spoke of these angels in Psalm 68. He said, The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. So these angels were not simply present during the giving of the law, but the law was actually given through them. This is why Stephen, when Stephen preached the gospel to the Jewish leaders, he said that the law was ordained by angels. And then the author of Hebrews, he called it the word spoken through angels. So now these Judaizers in Galatia, they, they, they were probably mesmerized by this talk of angels because it meant that it gave added authority to the law. But Paul's pointing out that the role of the angels did nothing to enhance the law. In fact, it did quite the opposite. Because when compared to the promise, the law was at a distinct disadvantage. The law was put into effect through a mediator. The promise had no such mediator. It was given directly to Abraham from God on the basis of his own eternal and immutable will. The law was given by the angels through Moses to the people, while the promise was given firsthand. 
the law was given third hand. Now, the people needed a mediator to receive the law because of sin. God used the angels and he used Moses to give the law to the people because they, those, those, these people could not come directly to God. Christ became the mediator of the law. He shows us his Father's law and desire for our lives, which reveals to us our sinful nature, and he acts as our go-between. Since we cannot come into God's presence, we need a mediator. We need a mediator because we are born at enmity, we are born at odds with God. So he brings those parties together who are not in agreement. And how do we know we're not in agreement with God? Because the law shows us that we are sinners. And when it comes to the salvation of God's people, that is all the law can do. It just shows us our sin. And so based on this argument that Paul has been making, he presents a logical conclusion that the law must be contrary to the promise of God. He says, no. And he probably threw his readers for a loop because he had been making his case that the law was inferior to the promise. You could almost see them nodding along in agreement as he asked, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And they would have been like, yeah, yeah. But he says, no, it's not. The two are not contrary because the two serve different purposes. The law cannot and was never intended to grant life. If it could have done so, the promise would have been unnecessary. And so Paul's getting to the root of the error of the Judaizers' teaching. He's saying that if a law had been given to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on that law. And so we're at the crux of Paul's argument, his reason for writing this letter. These churches, these people who he loved deeply, were entertaining this notion that adherence to the law obtained salvation. But Paul knew the law cannot give life. We can look back at Paul's words in Galatians 3 verse 12 where he said, He who practices them shall live by them. In other words, the law offers God's blessing to those who are able to keep it. But that is the problem with the law that any, and with any teaching that says we can earn our way or earn God's favor. The law proves we are sinful creatures and anything less than perfect adherence to the law, it condemns us. It does not save. And then Paul continues and he puts that little conjunction that he so likes to use. But Paul loves to use this word because he, he, he likes to throw out this, he'll put out this argument that makes everything seem so bleak, gloomy, almost depressing, that we're, what hope could we have? And then Paul says, but, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We do need to understand that important truth as we read that verse, okay? The law does not make us sinners. I've said this, and I, but I want to make sure we understand it. The law does not make us sinners. It just proves we are sinners. Lest we think that God gave the law to make us bad so that we would need him. Okay? We made ourselves bad, and God gave us the law so that we would see that. And when we see what we truly are, we recognize our need for a Savior, and we would be driven to faith in Christ. This is how the law leads to Christ. It cannot save in and of itself, but it leads us to the one who can save. 
Luther explained it like this. The law, with its function, does contribute to justification, not because it justifies, but because it impels one to the promise of grace and makes it sweet and desirable. Therefore, we do not abolish the law, but we show its true function and use, namely that it is a most useful servant impelling us to Christ. For its function and use is not only to disclose the sin and wrath of God, but also to drive us to Christ. Therefore, the principal purpose of the law and theology is to make men not better, but worse, that it shows them their sin, so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and so may long for the grace and for the blessed offspring. Paul calls the law a guardian. Now that word in the Greek is where we is the word pedagogue. So pedagogue in this in this in there, during uh, uh, the time of Israel, the pedagogue was like a schoolmaster, but it was much more than this. The pedagogue would would have been a slave appointed to serve as the child's protector. They were responsible for getting the child to and from school, but they were not the educator. They were the disciplinarian. A pedagogue served the best interest of the child in many ways. They would discipline, not necessarily severe, but they would discipline when they would not get, stay on the path that they were leading them to, and then the pedagogue would provide protection as well as punishment. So in the plan of salvation, the law is the pedagogue that raised the Jews from childhood through adolescence. It was not the schoolmaster to teach them how to get better and better until God finally accepted them. It told them what to do, and it punished them for failing to do it. And like any pedagogue, it worked its way out of a job. Because when the child comes of age, it no longer needed constant supervision. And so this is what Paul means when he speaks of the coming of faith. When the people put their faith in Jesus, the time of the law was over, and the era of faith had begun. So when the law is used perfectly... It is not opposed to the promise. In fact, it is complementary to it. The law points us to the promise by showing that faith and only faith can justify. Thus, it leads us to Christ. And when we believe in Christ, we receive all of the promise, all the blessings that God promised to Abraham. As I said last time, this may be something that many of you have heard. And if you are a Christian and you have received this promise then I hope you will hear it with gratitude and with joy as you are reminded of the blessings of salvation. But if you do not know Christ, if you have not yet responded to him in faith, then I pray that these words would point you to the cross, that you would see your need of a Savior, that you would receive the promise of salvation by placing your faith in the only one who can save. And it is not yourself. It is not your own efforts. Faith is what grants us the promise. And what is that promise? If we have placed our faith in Christ and we have been baptized into Christ and we have been clothed ourselves in Christ, if we are to be accepted by God, we have to have our sin removed, and that is what Christ did on the cross. He, Christ clothed himself in the filthy rags, as Isaiah called them, of our righteous acts while he was on that cross. Isaiah understood that trying to find salvation by keeping the law was foolish. 
the best that we have to offer, no matter how much of the law we keep, those good deeds are as filthy rags. Without Christ, we would stand before a holy God wearing those rags, and he would send us from his presence. But if our faith is in Christ, he took those filthy rags from us, he wore them on the cross, and gave us new clothes. He clothed us in his righteousness so that when we stand before God, he will see us as he sees Christ as righteous, not because we are, but because we are covered in Christ. And if we are covered in Christ's righteousness, then we belong to a new family, the family of God. And as part of that family, we are children of God. We are like Christ in a much different sense, but we still share the same inheritance. We have been adopted into God's family, and we are going to receive the same inheritance that Christ does. And it doesn't mean that we're sharing part of the inheritance with everyone else. We don't just get a portion. You don't get a small sliver, and you get a small sliver, and we all get this inheritance. No, we all get the same inheritance. We all receive all of God. We receive all of the blessings that he offers, and we all inherit the kingdom. We inherit what Christ inherits because we are in Christ. And if we share in his sufferings, we share in his glory. And if our faith is in Christ, our sin has been put to death, and we are resurrected into new life. This is where we see the importance of the law. Not that it justifies us, but it leads us to the one who can justify us, to the one who can grant us the blessings of the promise. The law and faith work hand in hand to lead us to salvation. The law shows us where we fall short. Faith grants us the grace that we need from God to cleanse us of our sin. John Stott, in his commentary on Galatians, he says, Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and for life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. We need the law to lead us to Christ. For only when the law reveals our sin will we ever start to look for the grace that God has for us in the gospel. So it might seem like a weird thing to pray for your loved ones and say, God, stricken them with the law. God, would you, would you humble them and see their need? Would you bruise them so that they would see that they, the only help that they have, the only hope that they have is in Christ? I pray that for those of you that are here this morning, that maybe you have not given your life to Christ. I'm praying that God would reveal to you what a wretch you are. Because we are all wretches. The only difference in some of us is that we are wretches who have been saved by grace. And I pray that if you're here this morning and you have not experienced the saving grace of God, that you would turn to him and say, God, forgive me of my sin. I see that my life has been lived contrary to what you have expected of me, and I want to turn from that and turn now to you. This is the gospel that must be preached. But it is unfortunately the gospel that is preached far too seldom in many churches these days. Too often we hear soft messages that reflect solely on God's grace and love without telling people why they need God's grace and love. We cannot fully understand God's grace until we understand what God's grace is rescuing us from. But we must also caution ourselves from preaching the law 
without preaching grace. Because to do so leads to legalism and an attempt to justify themselves, which will cause people to miss the blessings that are promised to them. So yes, I pray that if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, that God would reveal to you your sin. And then I would pray that you would not try to save yourself in your own attempts to live a godly life with, apart from Christ, because you cannot do it. It is only through adherence or it is only through faith in Christ that we can even hope to obey his law in any part. We must give our lives fully over to, to Christ and accept the free grace that he has to offer. Let us preach and let us live in the knowledge that the law and grace work hand in hand, that they are complementary to one another, that we might be found in Christ, that we might be, see ourselves as co-heirs of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your law. Lord, your law that points us to our need of a Savior. As we have recognized the sin that has separated us from you, God, Lord, it is in that recognition that we realize that we need a Savior. And we thank you, God, that you sent your Son who did keep the law perfectly. And he did so on our behalf and then died on our behalf. And I thank you, God, that we can find grace through faith in your son Jesus. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, may they also come to that recognition, Lord. May you remove the scales from their eyes. May you open up their hearts to receive this word this morning. For those of us that have received it this morning, that do have experienced it, I pray that we would walk out of here this morning knowing the joy of our salvation. And that others might see that joy in our faces and through the way that we live our lives. That we want to obey, uh, obey your law, God, not because it brings us salvation, but because we love you. And we want to do what pleases you. Thank you, God, for your word. May we follow it this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.